Interval Drinks is recorded remotely. Interval Drinks is sponsored by Darwin Escapes. Welcome to the Royal Shakespeare Company. This is Interval Drinks, a podcast in which Royal Shakespeare Company resident artists talk to people who have inspired them over drinks. I really recommend working at the ROC during a pandemic. There's no audience that matches an audience of young people. I mean, I literally left drama school thinking, this will never work out. I'm trying to flatter you, but I'm probably insulting you at the same time. I don't want to be less soft. I, I want to be vulnerable. I want to wander around with all my emotions terrifying me close to the surface and, and then monetize that. This is why I'm doing this. This is what I was born to do. And this is why I was born to do it. Catching up in the interval this week, Evita J with the actor Adjo Orlando. Hello and welcome to Interval Drinks, the Royal Shakespeare Company podcast in which we talk to artists who inspire us. I'm Avita Jay and I'm in the current RSC company rehearsing Erica Wyman's The Winter's Tale. And my interval buddy is someone I grew up watching on TV shows like Casualty and Doctor Who and on stage in brilliant productions like Julia Caesar at the RSC and Richard II at the Globe, which she also co-directed, and now in the fabulously entertaining Bridgerton on Netflix. She is a performer whose magnetic energy, passion and strength has always inspired me every time I've seen or heard her perform. And I'm very excited to be sharing an interval drink with Adjua Ando. Welcome. God, I sound so old. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) But you have had an extraordinary career of over 30 years. Yeah. And um, 37. Gosh, blimey. (laughs) 38. Oh, God, I can't remember. I can't do the maths. Anyway, yeah, it's a long time. It's it's banned everything like on screen, stage, audio work. Now, if we can cast our minds back to the heady days of being able to go to the theatre and be in an interval, I'll ask you, what are you drinking? I'm drinking vodka, but I'm mainly queuing for the toilet. <laughs> it's not every yes. woman's experience of going to the theatre. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. There's always a massive queue for the toilets. I just, you know, I just think about all those Victorian theatres and, you know, if you've ever played a part uh, that's set in that era... In you got corsets and bustles and layers of bloomers and petticoats. Just imagine the mission of, of, of queuing and then going to the toilet in the interval in those tiny theatres. Uh, you know, those uh, just everything, everything about women and gear in that era is so hard. Yeah. I just think people scrubbing, scrubbing doorsteps and lugging children and getting water for the bath in the kitchen and all in these mahoosive frocks. Yeah, and it continues, doesn't it? Because there's that whole going to the toilet to touch up your makeup and, you know, all of those processes that yeah. we sort of yeah. go through that adds to the queue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Men definitely yeah, yeah. don't do. No. 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 <laughs> anyway, you know, there are, there are more theatres being, uh, you know, theatres that are coming up now, uh, uh, I remember Nick Heitner saying that the bridge, the USP of the bridge was the enormous range of toilet facilities available and uh, and the quantity. 
Actually, the RSC is not bad for toilets. Let's, let's just get that in. The RSC so, um, is pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's good for access. It's good for all good things like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But um, as an actor, have you got any interval backstage rituals? It really depends on the show. Uh, so when I was doing Troilus and Cressida with Greg up at the RSC a couple of years ago, uh, or when I was doing Richard II at the Globe, I would be, I would be running lines. Mm. I, I'll still be running lines right till the last night. And in the end, even if I didn't need to run the lines, it was like, no, you have to run the lines because if you don't run the lines, tonight's going to be the night when or the sky's going to fall in or something. You, you, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I, I am... I, I am um, I am quite a ritualistic um, person and, 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 and absolutely with the theatre, there are some things that are like, no, no, don't interrupt me now. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Whatever the particular neurotic thing I've chosen for a particular production is, I, I must be doing it. It must be about my business. Yeah, yeah. I, I've always wanted to be, um, you know, I've always wanted to be a lovely, sophisticated actor who, you know, in the in the interval, they wander into each other's dressing rooms and they have a little chat about, you know, life or whatever, you know, just supremely relaxed on top of their game, all of that stuff. It's like when I was at school, I wanted to be that sophisticated person in the sixth form. I'd go in, I wouldn't talk. There'd be an air of mystery about me. People are like, oh, actual. No, I'm... And they're thinking, oh, shut up, shut up. So, um, so there's no, been no change. <laughs> I'm still at school, basically. That, that is very reassuring to know. Um, now, as an actor, I'm doing my first season here at the RSC. Congratulations. Um, Thank you so much. Thank beautiful, you. beautiful play. It what is. a lovely play to be working on. Yeah, it really is. And it feels so timely to be doing it now can i just say this is me with this is me with my big anorak on with rsc and shakespeare printed all over it there is never a time when the production you are in is not on point (laughs) i know i I mean shakespeare is uh, well i i I, everyone knows i could bore on for shakespeare forever but um uh, he's always on point Mm -hmm. always on point there will always be something amazing and astonishingly of the moment that will bang you in the face when you're, uh, uh, you know, in, in a production of a, of a Shakespeare play. Mm-hmm. Always. I mean, I, uh, Troilus and Cressida, I, I just, th- I found the whole thing profoundly moving all the time, just thinking about these endless wars mm-hmm. and uh, people just losing their minds, the cruelty, of, the, the, the human cruelty and, and, the, and the idea of... Um, uh, um, uh, Ulysses in 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 Troilus and Cressida has this wonderful speech uh, in the in the first act, uh, talk just talking about you know the planets being out of alignment and what happens when nature is out of alignment, and um, you know then I I was probably thinking much much more about climate change, but you, wang bang you put that straight into things being out of alignment in nature now and nature will bite you in the ass. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's exact. I mean, obviously, Ulysses was using it in terms of a hierarchical, strategic, and Agamemnon. But um, you know, you think about. You, I think about that language, and I think, mm, well, that'll be a virus that's jumped from animals to humans, yeah, and is biting us all mightily in the ass now. <laughs> so you know, it's really, it's just, it's um, 
he, he's always on point. So, so just tell me, so what for you has really jumped out about The Winter's Tale for this time? Gosh, I think the sliding over 16 years, that kind of gap in time of things not changing for Leontes. Obviously, it's mm-hmm. only been just over a year for us with lockdown and this pandemic. But that feeling of being stuck and things yes. not changing and being stagnant and wanting spring to come, wanting yes. new life to, to begin and for this kind of static energy to break. Yes, yes, yes. I think actually already um, the first intimations of spring around us, I'm hysterically joyful already at every mm. little snowdrop that's come up in the garden or a crocus and now the narcissi are coming out and then it'll be the diddles <laughs> and then the blossom on the tree yeah yeah absolutely i think um that that yearning for 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 a, a reboot or a restart or or a confirmation that life keeps moving yeah yeah mm. absolutely and i i think as you say shakespeare is so universal in its specificity like that yeah, specific absolutely grief that is mm-hmm. experienced by the characters the the yearning for what is lost yeah. i think that's a thing that everyone experiences at some point in their lives i've been thinking about that that yearning for the loss yearning yearning for mm-hmm. what's been lost i i think that's actually a really um a really strong feeling that lots of i think we've we've been a world in grief in this last year. Yeah. And whether that's Absolutely. actual grief for, for, for losing loved ones or grief for the life that we've lost or the freedom that we've lost or the agency that we feel we've lost, which we know mm-hmm. at some level is a big old con anyway. Agency, you know, a tree can fall on yeah. you tomorrow. But um, <laughs> uh, that, but the, the, um, the reality of having to face that, I, I think, yeah, I think that sense of loss and grief and mourning about actually not knowing not recognising it maybe or not knowing how to do it or thinking, well, what's the point of that anyway? Because I'm still stuck in the same place. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Leontes, it's, um, it's been a really profound thing this year at a, a deeply spiritual, psychological level for everybody. You know, I think it's um, it's been a really, uh, I think we'll look back on this year and it will have been an, extra- an, an extraordinary time for your company. You know, that kind of, yeah. are we on? Oh, we might be, oh no, we're not, oh, we're still here. Yeah. You know, how you sustain your connection to the work, how you keep a freshness in your approach, keep it enlivened until Mm -hmm. the point that you can express it. That's a real, that's a real tough, that's, that's actually a bit like an extension of what you do at the interval. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you've got to stay on, on point in the moment, but you know, but we are, but you are living through moments. So the production that you would have um, given, the show you'd have given us, a year ago is different from the show you'll give us now completely because you different. you are freighted by everything that's happened to you and that will resonate with your your performance and the way you know that chemical interaction between the characters is all going to be you know incrementally shifted by this common experience that we've all had i'd love to ask you when did you first have that eureka moment with shakespeare I really connect to this and it's, it's relevant. It's relevant to me. When, when do you first remember having that? Gosh, uh, that's a really good question. Well, weirdly enough, because I am a great one for saying, 
take people to see Shakespeare before you make them sit and schlep through it. Because, you know, we are an audience. We go to hear the play. Uh, Shakespeare didn't, he wasn't writing novels. He was writing something that's alive and chemically active between the viewer and the and the player. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm a great proponent of go and see the work before you read the work. You know, that's a way to grab people's attention. Um, uh, real tears are better than red tears in this context. Mm. But for me as um, uh, uh, an individual, I would say it, 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 it was Hamlet. It was studying Hamlet for A-level. Mm. And... Um, oh, wow. We did Julius Caesar for, for O-level, old money, O-level. Um, mm-hmm. And I just remember we had to read round the class and I was, like, ready to stick pins in my eyes because... I'd finished the play and people were were still... And I had to go back and then I'd be in trouble because I was on the wrong page. People were still staggering. Oh, dear. That was just not a good way to come to Shakespeare. But Hamlet, we're in a small six-form group with people that really want to dig into the language and uh, the ideas. And I, you know, I, I I was an angsty teenager just like everybody else. Hamlet was my guy. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I am... Um, I, I, I think that's when I, I've still got my I've still got my copy downstairs with all my notes in it from 1980. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah, Hamlet was my guy. So I think that's when I, I made a sort of personal connection with going, oh, the things that that person's and my parents were getting divorced. And so, you know, there were lots of mm. uh, fractured family resonances. But I think that sense of. Um, uh, oh, oh I, 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 yeah, me too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I feel that. Oh yeah. wow, he's it's Shakespeare, but it's me. You know, mm-hmm. I think that connection was very, you know, solipsistically strong at that moment. So that's fifteen. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I think something else that I've always loved because I love music, and I love poetry, and I think you know Shakespeare is both of those things. Mm. So um, I think there's that. For me, it's it's like eating your favorite food to have those words in your mouth. You know to. Uh, have the privilege of finding new ways to connect this fantastic language and these brilliant concepts with whatever's resonating in your heart within the within a production i just it's it's literally delicious yeah so yeah. I, I so you know it, it so I, I i'm connecting at a very um a very sensate level as well as an intellectual uh, uh an emotional level i just i love the sound of the language in my mouth mm-hmm. <laughs> I like I like saying the words. The it's, words are great. It, that's a brilliant analogy about the food, because it's it's like if you've been eating fish fingers and chips, and then suddenly you have a lasagna, and it's it's that kind of the sophistication of the the different tastes yeah, and yeah. and flavors suddenly, and once you become aware of that, it is like you say delicious and and just lovely to have those words and that excuse to kind of express yourself in such a a big way and it's such a you know I think I I don't know I don't know how other people feel but I just like sometimes you're like okay come on let's get into it let's get into it what Mm. have you got for me just sort of digging into the language you know and kind of making the making the making the aural connections between the sound of a phrase, the sound of a word, the way you have an echo of, 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 of a rhyme or a, um, 
you know, a vowel, a long vowel sound that te- that tells you something about the feeling of the character. And just mining, I love m- mining the text for all that detail mm-hmm. with, you know, Shakespeare going, this bit, look at this bit. I've said it three <laughs> times, pay attention. Or I've put four Fs in a, in a row. What do you think that's about? You know, yeah, just yeah. kind of having those, um, I call it Cluedo. It's like Shakespeare Cluedo. Yes. Absolutely. And I love it because he just, he keeps opening out to you and opening and opening and opening. And and I, I always think that the, the mark of something brilliant is that you put it into the hands or the mouths or the ears of a different person and it it, it, it rediscovers itself. It's, it's re-enlivened with their soul or their spirit and becomes a new thing. So he's he's uh, so in every iteration Shakespeare there are universal truths that hold but there is also a newness and a freshness um which is which is why Shakespeare is still with us I think because he's endlessly rediscoverable yeah completely extraordinary yeah and what was your first season at the RSC like was it what you expected it to be well I had a weird thing I came up to I came up to Stratford when the Swan was receiving shows. So I actually came, my first experience of of playing on a Stratford stage was the old Swan, and that was 1988. And I I did a show called Crowned with Fame, which was about the British uh, mixed-race composer Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who was... uh, Everybody should... Samuel, there should be a Samuel Cole Taylorage day. Mm-hmm. Um, he he was born in Croydon. Um, he was in his pomp in the late eighteen hundreds. He was a contemporary of Elgar. Went to Royal College of Music, um, and then he was very involved with Paul Lawrence Dunbar from the civil rights movement in America. He wrote uh, his most famous piece is probably Hiawatha's Wedding Feast. Um, uh, he wrote carols. He was played every year at the proms until the fifties. He was like a staple, this black man, and it's just like gone off the thing. Anyway, we did this wonderful production. Uh, A a wonderful actor called James Good played him. That man can play the grand piano like you wouldn't believe. I had to play my cello. Hmm. We were playing quintets and all sorts. It was fabulous. I played this American woman. Anyway, so that was my first experience of being in this one. Uh, That was 1988, and I was so... you know, I was practically kissing the stage. I was so thrilled to be here. And then I tried and tried to get into the RSC and they were like, nah, go away. Uh-huh. Nah, nah. <laughs> and then eventually um, there, was, there was a season uh, uh, where it was, it was Greg's first um, show for the RSC. Uh, uh, it was called The Odyssey. Mm-hmm. And Derek Walcott, the stunning St. Lucian Nobel Prize winning brilliant genius yeah. of Derek Walcott, um, Greg basically forced him mm. to do uh, an adaptation of the odyssey and he sort of um came up with his own beautiful poetic um it had elements of the west indies in it and it was just the, it was it was uh, it was an island man speaking into island people and their stories, you know, travelling the Greek islands and being away in exile and all, lots of things that Derek um, was intimately connected to. So Greg rather marvellously got him to to, to write the show. Um, so I was in that season and I didn't do Stratford. I, I, I took over. Somebody um, left the show to go and do something mm-hmm. else. So I took over the London season right. when it was still based at Barbican. So I did 
I did um, The Odyssey and I did Tamburlaine, the great mm-hmm. um, uh, Tony Cher playing um, Tamburlaine. Uh, and uh, I had the best time. <laughs> People were uproarious and fabulous and brilliant. Yeah. So it was just full of mm-hmm. really big personalityed people being really good at wow. what they did. And I was I was so thrilled to be amongst them because I didn't go to drama school as well. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was like my first experience was being uh, of being with humongous amounts of, uh, you know, drama trained actors. Yes. Being 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 fabulous. Oh, wow. And being incredibly self-deprecating about their skills and their fabulousness. And I just <laughs> I was just thrilled to be in their company. So I was very I was very. Um, yeah, I was very happy. What an amazing experience. Mm. Um, yeah, it was. Now, I'd like to ask you what acting has kind of informed other bits of your life. Like, has it kind of spurred your interest in other fields, made you more active politically as an activist? In what way has it sort of spilled into other parts of your life? I suppose for me, it's the other way around. So uh, I, you know, I, I was always the kid that I was doing plays in the living room at sort of age six, dragging all the neighbourhood kids into it. So I didn't know you could do it for your life. I didn't know I could pay my mortgage with it. Um, but um, I knew that it was a way of expressing my relationship to the world that was just a part of me. I was always always dressing up, always, um, you know, playing uh, with with friends who were into that. I was always writing. I used to sew books and I used to illustrate them. And so um, Mm. expressing my response to the world creatively is like day one. That's that's always been the thing. Um, uh, So um, I think when I came to understand that I could make my living doing this and I didn't have to be a good African daughter and be a lawyer, I could walk out of my law degree (laughs) <laughs> I made my dad cry, but it would be okay. Um, uh, I didn't have to work for Lloyds Bank, which I did for a year right through the Falklands. It was grim. Um, uh, I didn't, you know, that there were there there was a way that I could earn my living, sitting right in the midst of the way I responded to the world, and that was through acting. Mm-hmm. So that that the revelation of that uh, has been utterly joyful. But I was already, uh, I think, tattooed on my forehead under the subcutaneous tattooing uh, it says it's not fair uh, you know it's not fair uh, mm. i think i have a 3 year old's uh, sense of i want things to be fair yeah. you know whether that means that um uh nobody's going to try and do um uh, a conversion therapy mm-hmm. on you or your your the children who you care about because mm-hmm. society mm-hmm. doesn't like it uh, and equally that you widen the ramp so that somebody who's got uh, is using a wheelchair can get into the building mm, mm-hmm. or do you know what I mean or you know I'm a pa- patron for fair trade why because why should small children be enslaved on cocoa plantations so that we can have a cheaper bar of chocolate mm-hmm, mm-hmm. why uh, you know or, or that the shareholders of those big multinational sweetie corporations can have a larger Range Rover 
So um, uh, fa- fairness and justice uh, are, are part of my DNA. Uh, but I, I think that those things come from your lived experience as well. Yeah. You know, I, 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 um, I grew up, and there were particular circumstances around being a black child in the 60s, Cotswolds, mm-hmm. um, where you weren't treated fairly. Uh, and uh, uh, and I, I learned to not be bullied um, and then I would stick up for people who were being bullied and it's a sort of an extension of that. Because the other side of that is life is fabulous. Yeah. It's a miracle we're even here. Yeah, so absolutely. the other side of it's not fair is it needs to be fair because it's so fabulous that we even exist. Mm. So um, And if we could just get past all of those hurdles, then we could all have a fabulous yeah. time together so yeah yeah so um I, so basically i'm after i'm after world fabulousness which which you speak about in your ted talk as well it's um about your transgender son and on that theme um of what determines who we are and you speak about aiming for a future where people aren't judged by outward signifiers like race class and gender but by their inward character. And I'd love to know, when have you felt like you were getting parts where the casting had nothing to do with what you outwardly appeared to be? On the radio? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. No, I, I, I played, we did um, Oliver, mm. I, 1992, me and Tim McInerney I, uh, and Edward, can't remember his surname, the child who played Oliver, he was so good. He was he was eleven, and he was giving us notes, and we were like, "Yeah, that's fair, Edward. You're right." <laughs> um, uh, I I played Nancy. Uh, you know, in 1992, there was no way a, a black woman. I mean, obviously, Sophie Okonado's done it now, but at that time, there was no way anyone was going to cast yeah, yeah. me as Nancy. Um, and I think because I've grown up in this country, uh, because uh, literature was massive in our house, literature and music. Because my mum's a teacher. Um, because I just. I sucked up all the stories and the cultural stuff that was around me. There was always this sense of, oh, yes, I've absorbed it, all, but I'm not allowed to partake in it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, this isn't, what, 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 what? So, you know, it's, it, you know, and it, it was great to come and play uh, Ulysses at the RSC. Mm-hmm. You know, and for it not to be a thing, it, you know, it, it wasn't like, oh, she's playing, a, is she a hero? Is she? It's like, just play the character. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's exactly what we did with our, our Richard II as well. It's like, I'm not interested in, just just play the character. Mm-hmm. What does the character want? What's the character need? And I suppose that sort of speaks into, um, you know, if, 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 if a character's written if, if, as a man uh, for a particular reason, or a woman's a woman for a particular reason, and it's, it's imperative to the narrative, then of course, then that... It, it is what it is. Uh, um, so I'm not sort of proselytising blindly I- I- in that regard. Mm. But I think it's really, um, it's, 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 it's really interesting to be able to have the scope. I, I did a, so I did a short film for a young filmmaker called Joe Johnson. Joe Johnson, everybody. Mm-hmm. He's marvellous. Uh, and um, uh, it was about, uh, it was about a, a, a husband and wife who had a son who... Uh, is on the autistic spectrum, mm. uh, is in his early 20s and basically wants his freedom to go live his life. Mm. And the parents are, especially the mum, just like, I think you're too scared, can't let him go. Um, and um, the actor who'd been cast to play the son uh, was white. 
and the father was white. Uh, and um, I, so I rang Joe up and I said, so is there, are you, Bob? He went, no, I just think you'd be a really good mother. I want you to play the mother. She's not interested in, right. you, you know. And, and I was like, great, because actually our families are complicated these days. They could be anything. Mm, absolutely. You know, and it, 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 is my race of relevance to the story? No, mm. it's about mothering and it's about not being able to let go of your kids and particularly extra freighted with your, your, your child is on the spectrum and you're, you're scared. Yeah. So um, uh, I love that. Um, I just love the freedom. Joe's, you know, he's, a, he's in his early 20s. Mm. He's just not, he's not bothered. And I just think there is a, I think there has been a, a sort of um, a generational shift mm. of levels of not botheredness about things. It's like, what's the narrative drive of the story? Focus on that. If there are specific things in the casting of characters that are really important to the narrative drive, absolutely follow them down. And if they're not, maybe you're just going to go the essence of who feels like a mother mm-hmm. that you'd like to have that energy in your show. So um, I think it's I think I think it's it's really interesting times. On the other hand, say something like Bridgerton, where people talk about colorblind casting, yeah. and I want to say it's not colorblind casting mm. because colorblind casting in everybody's mouth does not mean Really, the white actors are pretending to be of Mm colour. Colourblind casting always means the other way around. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, you know, I am the colour I am. Mm -hmm. I'm not not being that colour. And also, in the context of that show, it's an easy get-out for denying the existence of people of colour in numbers at that time. Yeah. If we go, oh, it's just colourblind cast. They weren't really there. She's pretending to be a duchess. Bless. No. Every situation is is complicated and different. Yeah. And you just have to use your nose, really. And it's kind of that history erased these people. Yeah. Rather than we are artificially inserting them into history. It's just... Yeah. We haven't been told that they were there for a very long time. And now it's it's about time that we were. Yeah. You know, and and that's the case for so many things, isn't it? Mm. You know, we've got Alan Turing on a banknote now. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know... That man was forced to take his own life mm. because of the social mores of the day, having basically saved the country yeah. uh, in the Second World War uh, at Bletchley Park. So, um, I, yeah, I, I've just I did a, a thing called Women Make Film with um, a director called Mark Cousins, and basically it's the history of women in film. Mm. And you go back to the late eighteen hundreds, and there's a woman called Alice uh, Guy Blechet, who uh, was a secretary at the Gaumont where the Gaumont brothers were, uh, before film started. Um, and uh, she, she needed to earn some more money and she started working for them in a different capacity. She ended up, you know, she made her first film in the 1890s, you know, and still we're having a push about getting women filmmakers in. Mm-hmm. She made a ton of films. She made a ton of money. She made the first all-black uh, film, in uh, a f- called A Fool and His Money in 1910. Uh, and, um, and she completely disappeared from history, completely disappeared. Because at a certain point, the mores of, of women being in control of their material and the medium uh, was not acceptable. And so she was sidelined. And that's the story of so many people's contributions through history. The social mores mean that your brilliance is tricky for us to fold into our worldview, so you can go. 
um, or we'll just erase your contribution from history. And it's, we just have to, we have to do the detective work. We have to do more Cluedo and just, just put history back into history on all, on all fronts. Yeah, and, and stop being lazy. <laughs> well, you know, we need to have, a, we need a strong governmental push on the curriculum. Mm. And really a, a sort of shift in the people who make these decisions because if if people were from diverse backgrounds then yeah they would make Uh, decisions that reflected that and differently and uh the thing is you know when you have a variety of people making decisions over a variety of stories you get the variety but you get it in a since you get it in a way that has no edge of oh we better do the right thing here or come on in yes you're welcome Yes, you know, oh, oh, look, we're making some space for you. When you've just got everybody being there going, yes, no, good, like that, don't like that, that's interesting. You know, you just, there's a, there's a freedom for people to um, express an interest in what they're interested in, whatever that may be. Mm. And it's interesting that point you make about colourblind casting. Sometimes it's not always about just ignoring race. It's about acknowledging that, these people are part of the story and welcoming their background and difference and not seeing it as the more convenient thing to just go, okay, plonk, you're now in the story and we we don't have to take into account what, I don't know, you might have a a different name or different family situation Mm. because of your background, Mm. but sort of welcoming those differences yeah, I think I think ignoring stuff is always wrong. It's mm. like, you know, you're only ignoring it on the surface because nobody's ignoring it. You're just not articulating it. And but the point is, you you can acknowledge everything and then just fold it all in. Mm-hmm. So what? So what? Yeah, you know. And and, and but I do, you know I think you can easily do a show where the 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 the, the race of someone is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. And then you do other shows where the race is relevant. Yeah, it doesn't have to define the person. There's no hard and fast rule. There's no hard and fast rule. You, 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 can, um, you can be as flexible as you want, but the way that we trust that there's no hard and fast rule is when we know that the, uh, the decision makers and the, invite, the invitors are, <laughs> are broad ranging and open. Mm. So then, you, know, you, then you, don't double, you don't double second guess, double question the decisions made. Yeah, totally. Is there anything over the last year that you think, well, anything positive that has come out of this pandemic and the way that we've had to work? I think tons of things, um, tons of positive things have come out, which is sort of universal, but also uh, have relevance for us. Uh, I think, you know, we we can't think about the pandemic without thinking of it in the context of, George Floyd, mm-hmm. uh, uh, climate change. Um, I think um, they're just two examples of the ways that because we have been uh, in a much more uh, enclosed space, our focuses have been pulled in. I think um, people have not been able to look away from difficult things in the same way that they do most of the time. Uh, I think I think that thing I was saying about being... Uh, in the midst of grief uh, for the loss means that 
all your sensibilities are raw. So I think people are responding in a slightly less benumbed way to everything, you know, in a good way, in a bad way, uh, in a domestic violence is on the up way uh, and and in a, you know, more generously looking out for your neighbour way. I, you know, I think it's all on the same raw response spectrum. So I think mm. I think that's good. You know, for me, it's the same thing as we can't ignore stuff. Mm. You just have to look at it. And then you have to fold it in and then yeah. work out how you're going to respond to it. Um, and I think the demands of COVID have just exposed the fault lines uh, in terms of people's resilience and fragility in all in all areas of life. So, you know, I could put my fair trade hat back on and I can talk about if you're a small if you're a small farmer and you're in an area that's now becoming subject to a climate change that you've had no part in creating and you're coping with COVID, you're really right on the edge of things now. Um, uh, uh, if, you, if, you don't have a, uh, if you don't have a great resilience or ability to take care of yourself during these times, then I think uh, it's been very exposing to just how fragile people's lives are. You know, how people live on the, on the margins all the time. I think a huge thing... Um, I haven't really banged on about this very much, but and I don't know why. The level of uh, creative activity mm. involved in our school curricula, mm-hmm. 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 it's bad. It's really bad. And, 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 I, and I think uh, socially, uh, for human beings, for developing empathy and interest and a listening heart, you need, the crea- you need the creative arts. And that, to me, is as much a part of education as, you know, algebra. You need to think about other stories, about walking in other people's shoes. You mm-hmm. need to develop the skills of just listening and watching and absorbing and reflecting, you know, whether it's through a piece of music or, or, or a piece of poetry or a painting or, or a piece of theatre. You know, uh, to, we, to, we, we excise that stuff from Absolutely, our curriculum yeah. at our peril. And actually, uh, the less privileged you are quite often uh, in, in your educational setting the less you're going to have access to all that beautiful stuff. And that, which is just, it's just doubling down on. Exactly. It's seen as a sort of frilly extra. We're giving you the fruit cake. You don't need the marzipan and the icing, love. It's not seen as essential when it absolutely is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would say it is the fruit cake. You're right. I mean, those skills you mentioned about listening and empathy and walking in other people's shoes, that's, that's exactly what, everyone needs more of really more 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 of uh, and i think doing stuff creatively internationally uh but internationally to areas where people may have less access to culture mm-hmm. is also fabulous and doing it um, nationally and locally to areas where people traditionally have less access you know and all, all those provincial theatres my goodness me what a great social act of cohesion they are you know, from the pantomime to the youth theatre company. I mean, how many lives have been saved by being able to join a youth theatre company? I mean, I wouldn't be an actor if it wasn't for youth theatre. Mm. Yeah, and I, but I literally mean some people wouldn't be alive yeah. if it wasn't for youth yes. theatre. Yeah. Because they've literally, it's like, there is nothing, I don't see my life reflected anywhere here or I don't see my sensibility or, you know, and then they get into a youth theatre and this, yeah. this world opens up. Yeah, totally. Um, 
Where was your youth theatre? Uh, Stratford East. Ah, Stratford East. I worked East. as an usher there. Yes. And, uh, and that was actually how I knew that it was possible to be an actor, be a jobbing actor, and what you had to do to become part of that world. Because, as you say, growing up, I didn't see myself on screen. Mm. And I, I remember it was kind of a time where you, you'd go, oh, mum, there's an Asian on TV. Yeah. Quick, everybody like run. A, a big deal, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. like Sanjay and Geeta. Yeah. Um, but watching shows at Stratford East, and, and they're a theatre who really cater to their local audience and the diversity that is in that area. Um, and then getting involved with the youth theatre, it then became a feasible, real possibility. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So important. It's so important, and it should be in schools much more. Yeah, it was, it's important. It's really important. School schools need it. Kids are just spongy. However tough nuts they appear, or however silent they appear, everything's going in. And if we can get some good stuff and some love and some, you know, I see you yeah. stuff into them, you're important. You're valuable. That's why we're here. So. Five, ten, fifty years from now, where would you like to see theatre? It's a big question. <laughs> well, it'll all be on hoverboards by yeah, then. Yeah, of course. And we'll be in our cat. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, well, I, you know, uh, there were loads of theatres that then became cinemas and then became bingo halls and then, you know, sit and rot or I don't know what they become now. Dodgy nightclubs, all sorts. I'd like to. I'd like to see all those buildings opened up again. You know, I'd love to see. I'd love to see theatre everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think, particularly as we're becoming more and more uh, connected through screens, the need for communal activity uh, is 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 greater than ever. You know, and when you see a piece of theatre or a piece of anything live, you will never see that exact same mm-hmm. performance on any other day than the moment your ass is sat in that seat oh, yeah. or your feet are treading those boards or your hands are pulling those flies or your hands are giving that ush. <laughs> um, what, and you're breathing together. Yeah. You're all sort of in You're breathing the same together. Room, you're breathing you know, together. well, it's that, it's that biological fact, yeah. isn't it? That if you, an audience's heartbeat will start to beat in mm. time with each other. Put a bunch of women on tour... They will all have their periods at the same time. You know, nature is built for us to be in community with each other. We're supposed to be. So um, I would say I would love there to be, uh, I'd love there to be more theatres open because I really would like there to be a solid foundational base um, to the industry in a way that I think is being slowly pulled away. I mean, even when I started, there were, you know, there were studio theatres where small touring companies, that's all, we're losing all that infrastructure. So I would love to see, all of that stuff back in. Um, it's a. Gr- um, I'd like to see more of the rep theatre system back in, so actors really get to cut their teeth in a variety of um, theatrical forms. And you know, you you learn your stamina early. Mm-hmm. You know, you're on stage in the evening doing one thing, you're rehearsing another thing in the day. Uh, that's a that's a lot. Um, it's thrilling. Um, so I'd love to see. I'd love to see that infrastructure m- much more. Uh, solidly in place throughout the country. Um, I, I think that would be great. 
and and it would be a sort of um, palate cleanser from the the zoom of doom and the the scream of scream. <laughs> um, so I, I think that I think that's good, and I think it it. it Young people need somewhere to go yeah. as well. They need something to do. They need to have a variety of options available for them to to bring out the wholeness of who they mm-hmm. are. So to, to have the youth companies there, to see the professionals in action doing their stuff, to bring the joys to the communities, to have that focal point. Yeah. Um, I think for community cohesion, for growing empathy, education, for giving actors some, some uh, broader range of opportunities, for... Um, providing a space for uh, for young people to discover if this might be for them. And for just saying, you know, creativity is as important as having a doctor surgery down the road. Yeah. And right now, what would you say is, is the play, the piece of theatre that speaks to us where we are <laughs> as we are right now? <laughs> and then I'll tell you how to do world peace. Yeah, uh, good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're, we're putting the world to rights today, Adjua. <laughs> I've I've no idea. There's there's so much out there, you know. Um, uh, you know, uh, I I think all I think all the I think the cl- the cl- the classical stories, you know, are always amazingly uh, useful. So whether it's a you know the Mahabharat or uh, it's something from the gods of Nigeria or um, it's Shakespeare or the Greeks or some mm. great Norse epic. I think there's, uh, mm. you know, and, and all the other cultures I've forgotten about, you know, I, I don't know, you know, Aboriginal cultures. Classics and Aboriginal cultures will always have stories that are, like, on point. There will be great wisdoms and great uh, universal stories that will always, mm. Mm. that will always capture us. That's my, I just slid round the question, really, like then, didn't I? politician. <laughs> Yeah, like a greasy politician. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. I mean, it's it's a very difficult question to answer. Just watch, just watch lots of stuff. I yeah. have to say, um, this is me being slightly cheesy. I've been watching all the BAFTA films. Mm-hmm. It's that time, and there is, um, oh my gosh, what's it called? The new Sophie Loren film. I think it's called Life on the Edge. Mm-hmm. It's set in Naples mm-hmm. now, and uh, she plays. Uh, I mean, she's 85. Right. And wow. she's the lead in this film. Yeah. Hooray. That's something I'm to already aim for, cheering. <laughs> yeah. And she's fabulous. Yeah. And the part is emotionally challenging. Uh, it's her. It's a young um, uh, boy who's a refugee. I think he's from Cameroon or Senegal. I can't remember. He's on his own. He's young, 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 young. And you find out what's happened to him to be in these circumstances and she basically joins forces with her trans neighbor upstairs and the the muslim bookseller in town Mm -hmm. and she uh, is playing a woman who's a survivor of concentration camp and uh ended up working uh as a prostitute and then looked after the children of prostitutes Mm -hmm. the life ahead thank you it's called the life ahead (laughs) the film is so life affirming Mm. The situation is crap. It's horrible. And then you have this woman who has experienced all this stuff in her life, Mm -hmm. who has just seen that there is a need for someone to look after the children of of prostitutes in her area. She's too old to be a prostitute now. So she looks after them. She makes common cause with people who are sort of marginalised to bring joy and security and safety um, because she has known unjoy and insecurity and no safety Mm -hmm. in her life. And there's something about that 
that film that's that's uh, rather lovely. I suppose I'm talking about films because I've seen a film. Yeah. I haven't seen any theatre for so long. Yeah, I know. That that's sort of in my mind. So the life ahead, just for joy and affirmation and cheering at Sophia Loren. For me, it's also about this 85-year-old screen icon who worked with everybody from, you know, uh, Clark Gable right the way through to all those uh, extraordinary uh, uh, Italian actors um, and uh, Paul Newman and, you know, Richard Burton. I mean, everybody you can think of she's worked with chooses to put herself at the centre of this story about marginalised people coming together to make life better. I'm like, you are sensational. So, yeah, that was very moving. So you kind of of want to go, can I please have that sort of sensibility when I'm 85? But how lovely. I just, you know, every every day I can't believe my luck that I dress up, put on a a funny voice and somebody pays me. I know. It's wonderful to take a moment to celebrate that, isn't it? I really think that, you know, it might be that I'm just turning into an old git. (laughs) I still have a punk sensibility. Mm -hmm. That was my era. But um, I just, every so often I want to go, can everybody just step back a moment and understand how lucky we are, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, I go to Ghana and you switch the light on and the lights aren't working again for the next 12 hours, which means the water doesn't run. And... Mm -hmm. And then I come back to England and I turn a tap on and I go, (gasps) running water, turn it off, turn it on, (gasps) running water, light switch. Yeah, I hear you. Flushing toilet, woohoo. I hear you. So at a certain point, you know, we just need to understand that we are living, you know, we are living in the cream. Yeah. However sour it may sometimes feel. Totally. And however much we are justified in going, excuse me, this cream's off. (laughs) Can we just refresh the cream? Um, We are still living in the cream. It's, it's such a funny thing and it's so easy to lose sight of that. Like the other day, the boiler was broken. And then I sort of remembered a couple of years ago, I was in Delhi during the winter and it was two degrees mm-hmm. and there was no heating yeah. inside because they just don't have heating because it's like cold yeah. for three weeks of the year. And yeah. there was no hot water. And we were all just sitting around in coats and hats and gloves and, and like chatting and drinking tea and you know, you become content with that. You, you get used to that. We adapt. Mm-hmm. Now, having this conversation with you today, um, I know you're a lay preacher and I can completely understand how good you are at that, having talked to you today, because I could listen to you preach for hours. But I would love to know how that came about. So the thing I always say is, if I was born in Pakistan, I'd be Muslim. If I was, you know, born in Iran, I'd probably be Zoroastrian or uh, whatever. Um, I think I'm kind of interested. I've got a, I've got a bent towards the design, the divine in some way, uh, and it just happens that I was raised by, a, you know, my mother was an Anglican uh, and my father was a. A Ghanaian, a Ghanaian 
high Anglican. And uh, and my grandfather was a Gideon's Bibler and my English nana was a member of the WI and her church community. So um, that sort of always been there. I I took it to the... So my parents were high day holiday. We would... We'd, we'd always say grace and we'd, you know, you'd read the Bible at Christmas and stuff and maybe Good Friday. But they weren't sort of, they weren't committedly doing a Christian thing. It wasn't that sort of house. I was the only one that went to church after a certain point. Um, it, it, I grew up in the 60s in the Cotswolds. All the kids went to church or chapel. So it was absolutely class division. So I went to chapel. If you, if you, you went to church, if you either worked on the Duke's land because it's a dairy farming area, or you were a landowner, or you were posh. And uh, you went to chapel if you were working class or left wing. It was a it was an easy division. So I, I went to chapel, and um, everybody went until they were 14. The gig was at 14, you're old, you're old enough to leave school uh, and get a job, so then you're old enough to decide whether you want to go to chapel or not, or church, whatever it was. Um, so that's sort of how it started. Um, I, I went to... I went to uh, sort of um, youth groups on a Wednesday uh, in my village and uh, I did all that stuff. And then at 14, I became a punk and I saw the clash uh, and it all all sort of drifted away for a bit. And then as, you know, I'd be on tour and if there was a church, I'd always wander into a church. But my mother was an RE teacher. I'm just, I'm just interested in, Mm. I'm interested in faiths. uh, my my cousin's Jewish. I love going to her synagogue. Um, the church was attached to my kids' primary school. I, I attended it. I, the kids went to primary school. And at a certain point, the vicar said, don't hit me, but have you ever thought about this? And he gave me a vocations leaflet. Uh, and um, I had, I, I, I was, I think I was 40 and I'd been doing that thing of going, so what else am I supposed to be doing? Uh, and then that came and I was like, uh, really, really, okay. So, um, uh, you know, I am on the sweary socialist feminist end of the Church of England with a bit of punk sensibility in there as well. Um, and, um, um, but you know, for me, uh, the, the, the Christian, uh, message that I espouse is probably not much different in its outcome than, uh, most, most faiths, which is about, you know, justice and joy and um, recognising you're sort of, you're a part of something. You know, religion used to divide people, for me, is just the the the, the complete antithesis of what it's supposed to be. It's, a, it's supposed to be about community and coming together. And, uh, um, and, and or, uh, so I will push back against anything that I feel stops people from having access to whatever mm. they find helpful within faith so you know if that means what people want to push back because of someone's race or their uh, their gender identity or their sexuality or whatever it may be i i will push back hard because i'm just like I, I i i don't understand i think we're all divine if we're all divinely created we're all divinely created so step off we have just had the three minute bell so we've got time for one more question um, now I'm going to ask you, who, real or fictional, dead or alive, would you like to have your next interval drink with? You know, there's a writer, Tony Cade Bambara. She's dead. Uh, she's American. And she 
writes the most extraordinary books. Her, 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 her stuff makes my head when I read her work. Um, um, uh, I just she's she's so funny and snappy and sharp, and then she is completely almost supernatural in the way she writes. It's quite hard to start reading her stuff, but once you're in it, you're, you you won't get out of it. And I would I would love to I'd love to have have met her and just talked talk to her about you know she's somebody that makes you want to go what what uh, so yeah I I, I would I, I I'm so sad that she's dead. Mm-hmm. That I'll never get the chance to. Mm. So yeah, Tony K. Bambara, the Salt Eaters, uh, the Seabirds are still alive, Gorilla, my love. They're my first tips for you watching this. The Salt Eaters, the Seabirds are still alive, Gorilla, my oh, and these bones are not my children. Corkers. Thank you, thank you, Adua. It has been an absolute pleasure sharing this extended interval with you. Well, I, uh, you know, hooray for, for Stratford East. Hooray for you having the, um, the self-possession to follow through on that feeling that this was for you. And um, I really wish you every joy at the RSC. Thank you. I wish you every joy of this show and your, 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 your life as an actor. May it be long and fruitful. Here's to us. Here's to us all. Remember, you can catch your favourite episodes again on the Royal Shakespeare Company website. Interval Drinks is sponsored by Darwin Escapes.